everything remembers something. The rock, its fiery bed, cooling and fissuring into cracked pieces. The rub of watery fingers along its edge. The cloud remembers being elephant, camel, giraffe, remembers being a veil over the face of the sun, gathering itself together for the fall. The turtle remembers the sea sliding over and under its belly, remembers legs like wings escaping down the sand under the beaks of savage birds. The tree remembers the story of each ring, the years of drought, the floods, the way things came walking slowly towards it long ago. And the skin remembers its scars and the bone aches where it was broken. The feet remember the dance and the arms remember lifting up the child. The heart remembers everything it loved and gave away, everything it lost and found again, and everyone it loved. The heart cannot forget. The heart cannot forget. So, as the sole remaining hominid on this planet, you remember. The collective memories are carried by you, they're in you, they're, they're, they're moving through you. Think of all the other strains of hominid that once existed. They roam this planet. Like us, on a night like this, they might look up at the stars and wonder about the mystery. Like us, they struggle to find ways to live harmoniously. Like us, they feared for their safety for their survival. And all those other hominids that once inhabited this earth are gone. The Neanderthals, Australopithecus, Homo erectus, Homo habilis. I think they've, they've determined there's 20 or more branches of hominid that have disappeared and there's only one remaining and that's us, Homo sapiens. Every person you encounter on this earth is of our tribe. The rest of the tribes are gone. You know, you're not going to meet the meet a Neanderthal down at Whole Foods on the checkout line, and you're not going to run into an Australopithecus on e, on an eHarmony dating site. That's just not going to happen. It's just us, Homo sapiens. And one way to look at it, you are the spawn of a powerful line of survivors. And you remember, somewhere in your being, in the core of your nervous system, the very deepest recesses in your DNA, you remember those energies of your ancestors course through you. I can imagine the trepidation they had when they came down out of those trees in in Eastern Africa and looked out across the savannah and said, should we make make a try here? And they stood up and then spread throughout the world. And there's seven billion of us. So when you sit quietly here on retreat, you're visited by those archetypal energies of those ancestors, those energies that serve them for survival. And when you train yourself in meditation, a a major component of your practice is cultivating healthier relationships to those survival energies, especially the challenging ones. So tonight, I want to look at those challenging energies with you. And in Pali, they're called nivarana, which literally translates as coverings or that which hinders clear seeing, that which hinders clear seeing, that which covers over our natural perfected heart-mind. That natural perfected heart-mind, I'm speaking of, all of you have experienced, all of you know, 
in those moments when you feel safe, when you feel some love, when you maybe relaxed, alert a little bit, you feel connected in some way, when your heart opens. At those times, the conditions are ripe for you to directly experience the natural perfected heart-mind. You all know it. You know what it's like. Some, maybe when you're awestruck by the, the, the beautiful mystery of this creation in nature. You know, or maybe when you look into the eyes of a, a loved one and you really can see their goodness and feel it. Or maybe when you hold an infant. I, I came out a few days early to the retreat because my very first grandchild was born about a month ago in, in the Bay Area. So I didn't really know what to expect. I've never done this before, being a grandfather. But when um, my son and my daughter-in-law put the baby in my arms, I, my heart just, it's hard to describe, it just exploded open. And I was there just as alive as I've ever been the experience of the perfected heart-mind. You know, there's, an, there's an, such an awakeness, a knowingness, a, a heart that's ceaselessly responding. It's open, it's peaceful. And it happens naturally when conditions are ripe. But as you know, conditions are often not ripe for those kinds of experiences. And that heart-mind of ours is oftentimes covered with some level of anxiety, fear, anger, shame, guilt, whatever. And it's good for us to remember that underneath that surface turbulence is that oceanic, perfected heart-mind. The deeper truth, and we know it, and it gets covered over. For the last, maybe it's been a dozen years now, I've been teaching at the Women's Maximum Security Prison in Virginia, it's near Charlottesville. And um, those, those people are severely traumatized in every possible way. It's not like the TV show. That's kind of a, a joke in comparison to what life is like. But what shines through these people is this kind of indefatigable goodness. You know, and it can't be extinguished. You can traumatize people, you can put them in cages, but it's still there. And oftentimes, you know, we have a number of classes going on there. And, we, and sometimes I kind of drag myself there. I might have had a kind of difficult day with my little privileged bourgeois problems. And so I'm there and the crime lights and the, you know, and you go through all the, all the different gates and stuff. Um, but when I leave there, I'm uplifted because the field that is created by those women in our groups is one of appreciation and care and love. You know, and it's remarkable. You know, that goodness can't be extinguished, no matter the external conditions. If given a little safety and a little supportive space, that's all it needs. You know, we've all seen a little plant in the sidewalk, and we wonder how in the world is that thing living? It comes up through a crack. There doesn't seem to be any soil or anything there, but there it is. You know. Life like that and, and the perfected heart-mind won't be denied. I'm sure many of you remember that, that line from a Leonard Cohen's song. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So these energies that obscure or cover over this heart-mind of ours, they're often called hindrances. Personally, I like to refer to them as challenging energies. 
or even better, supportive friends, or even, or even a little stranger and better, limbic lovers. Well, I'll explain. So as, as you know, and most of you know, uh, they're broken out into five broad categories. You've got the first category, which is greed, you know, the wanting or lust, the wanting mind. Second category is aversion, which includes the energies of anger, feel, anger fear, guilt, shame, etc. The not wanting mind. And then there's the category of restlessness and worry. Anybody know that one? You know? Another category, sleepiness and dullness. Uh, sloth and torpor. You know? And then there's doubt. Okay? So these energies arise regularly in life. It's not just practice energies. This is what we're dealing with when we land here in this creation. Okay? But if you consider why they're so prevalent, you know, why do they cover over this kind of unstained, perfected, natural heart-mind? So, the reason or one of the things that I want to uh, touch into tonight is that they're actually the organism, the organism loving itself. Those energies that we call hindrances or challenging energies are the organism loving itself. They're actually loving visitors. And they come from the deep subconscious again, the primitive parts of the brain, the limbic system. They're very vigilant energies designed to ensure your survival. They're part of your inheritance from your ancestors. Their deepest intent, these visiting energies, the deepest intent, although they're driven by survival, you can look at them as having a caring intent attempting in their own way, I'm not saying there's wisdom here, but to provide you with comfort, avoid pain, protect you, connect you with others, and basically guarantee your survival. And they want to guarantee your survival forever. For example, a slightly changed perspective would be, when, say you're experiencing fear, Okay, fear's here. We know what that feels like in the body. To receive it with a softening perspective is that the fear is trying to protect us from some perceived danger, keep you safe. And at times it's useful. And other times not so much. It's overwrought. Okay? But it's a survival remnant. The organism trying to take care of itself, loving itself. And with that perspective of the organism loving itself, it can engender some empathy and some compassion for ourselves with that perspective. It's the same kindness that we'd show to somebody else who was frightened. And if it's wanting that you feel, whether it's wanting a something or a someone, if that happens to be up, a softening perspective on that is that the wanting is trying to bring you what you need for comfort or for survival. And if it's a relationship, it's trying to bring you connection. I mean, we're, we're herd animals. We're tribal in a way. We want to be included. We want to be part of the tribe. You know? And if we even think about restlessness and worry, it's another, or excessive planning. It's another uh, it's another situation, a softening perspective would be that your, your organism is just thinking and, and trying to get things lined up so that you will be comfortable, safe, and live forever. Yeah. And if it's sloth and torpor that's arisen and you're all fogged in, a softening perspective on that is that your organism might be trying to protect you from feeling something difficult or painful. It's well-meaning, but again, it's misguided. There's not much wisdom there. You know? and, and, and if there's doubt, if there's doubt, in the, in the limbic love context, doubt doesn't want us fooled by anything. And, and to 
it's better to paralyze the whole system than to make the wrong move. Better frozen than sorry. So you're getting it? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make the case that these energies are not the enemy. There's a, there's a line from, an, from, a, uh, from a poem by an anonymous samurai in the 14th century. I make my mind my friend. I make my mind my friend. That's the direction of this practice. That's part, an important part of what we're cultivating. And we've been talking about it these days, the softening, the gentle connection. It was a really huge step in my practice when I, when I realized these energies weren't something that were getting in the way of my practice, that they're a critical, critical part of practice and life. And that to include them, embrace them, finding a way to cultivate a softer relationship with them is really the way to go. That a soft, tender perspective taught me how to have a little more compassion for myself and by extension, a little more compassion for everything in this creation. You know, if you think about it, working with these energies is really akin to working with a loved one, a partner, a coworker, friend. All those relationships work much better when there's a, when there's a field of warmth, empathy, and trust. And that's what you're cultivating with yourself. So holding these energies with some modicum of respect and appreciation as as protectors, allies, lovers, if you want to stretch it a little bit, albeit misguided protectors, allies, and lovers, is really the way to go. Because if you hold these energies, the wanting, the lust, the anger, the fear, guilt, restlessness, worry, sloth, doubt, whatever, as your enemy, an enemy that must be defeated or suppressed, it sets you up for internal strife, internal warfare, fragmentation, and in the worst cases, self-loathing. So my, my simple suggestion is to consider some subtle changes in your relationship to these energies known as the hindrances, maybe add a little tone of appreciation and understanding to what's, what's going on at the deeper levels. It's like, hey, okay, wanting mind, you know. We're on the same page here, but I, I've learned a little more wisdom on how to deal with this particular situation. But thank you very much. It's a shift in tone from these energies being enemies to be eliminated to energies to be befriended. So what's, what's interesting is that your basic mindfulness practice, just in itself, um, organically mollifies and, and relaxes these energies. And it starts in the moment that you recognize that one of these particular energies is up. Because in that moment, you've got a completely new relationship to that, to that energy, whatever it is. When you're mindful of what's going on, you're not lost in it. And that's the key. You're not submerged in it. You're not identified in it. You're not enslaved by it. The moment of recognition brings a little spaciousness, a little perspective, And it's the beginning of a healthier new relationship to whatever that phenomena is and as difficult as it is. And, and, as you develop some continuity of mindfulness, some power of concentration or samadhi like you're endeavoring to do this week, 
the elements of that samadhi, the basic elements of that samadhi, naturally relax these challenging energies. And Sally talked the first night. Um, remember that way back then, like a long time ago? Um, that there's uh, a number of elements of samadhi, and there's five elements of them, of samadhi, the concentrated heart-mind, the unified heart-mind. So I'd like to go under the hood a little bit and take a look at these with, with, in a little depth. The first element that was mentioned is vitaka, aiming and connecting. It's the aiming and connecting of the mind. And that counteracts sleepiness. So I want you to try to connect with the sound just as I ring this bell. The sound is our object, very simply. In that moment of connection, there isn't sleepiness. Just in that very moment. It's wakeful, it's bright, you're there. Of course, there's different levels of sleepiness. Most of you have arrived here sleepy. And most of us in this culture are underslept. It's just the way we roll here in America. Everybody's underslept and overcaffeinated. You know, and then we have our personal biorhythms. Some people are morning people, some people are later in the day people. A more interesting type of sleepiness is called sinking mind. That's when there's a pretty good steadiness of mind. And some of you probably experienced that today. Pretty good steadiness of mind, but the energy isn't quite up to speed. It's like there's brownout conditions. You're kind of there with the breath, but there's not a crispness. There's not a, a connectedness. There's a, more of a, a little bit of a fuzziness. You're kind of mindful, but the lights have dimmed. Okay? And from up here, looking out in the beginning of a retreat or after lunch, it can look like a sea of bobbleheads, you know, just kind of, it's kind of jerking motion. Sometimes that jerking motion can, can kind of bring up the alertness again, uh, and the nervous system gets a little jolt, and off you go. And other times you just sink back down into the ooze from whence you came. So, um, so at those at those times, the vitaka, that aiming and connecting with the object, it's just not juiced enough. You know, the balance is some, somehow off between the, the calming and energetic factors of the mind. Now, if there's chronic sleepiness uh, when you're meditating, that could be just a life that's out of balance. Or maybe you're having resistance to some difficult emotion that, that needs to be felt through. Some sorrow, loneliness, whatever it might be. Another way to look at this sloth and torpor is that it's, it's just not being alive to what's happening right now, right here. It can be, in a sense, waiting for life to begin, waiting for the next jolt of stimulus. It's another characteristic of our culture. You know, and it's easy to become, in this culture, a stimulus junkie, where you're kind of dozing off in between one jolt of stimulus and another. Gosh, whenever I, whenever I, you know, get a Netflix movie or something and they have the previews, it seems like every movie now is nothing but explosions and car chases. It's like wah, 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 all this stimulation. So, Vitaka. It relaxes sleepiness. Second element of samadhi is vichara, the su- sustaining the contact. Listen to the sustain. See if you can stay with this. So the the sustaining capacity of the mind, that counteracts doubt. Because if you can sustain the awareness long enough, long enough to become intimate with your object, 
phenomena, whatever you're paying attention to. There's no opportunity in that interested connection at that point. There's no opportunity for any kind of uncertainty or confusion to kind of get in there and muddy up the mind. You're there. You're sustaining that connection. Of course, doubt's the... It's the most insidious of the challenging energies. It really is, because when it takes hold, it's logical. And skillful doubt is part of the discernment. It's an aspect of wisdom. You don't want to live your life like a fool who believes everything. You know, That's not going to work out so well. But on the other hand, running off on these long jags of doubt, 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 paralyzes the whole system. So at times, you may be sitting here thinking, oh my God, why did I sign up for one of these again? I can't do this. This may be right for somebody else. If I had better teachers, I know maybe I could do this. You know. But the plug gets pulled. That's the nature of doubt. It's kind of logical. The story. A nun came to the abbess complaining that doubt was her primary challenge on the Buddhist path. She had doubt about the path itself, about the teachings and about the teachers, and most importantly, about her own ability to succeed in the Buddhist practice. Your problem, said the abbess, is that you don't doubt enough. If you're going to the trouble of doubting, then continue your doubting, but do it more thoroughly. Please, also doubt your doubt. Doubt your doubt. If you find yourself stuck in that toxic morass and the energy is drained out, if you can remember, maybe a few questions can help kind of recalibrate your system. And one question is, okay, what am I believing right now? Am I really a total schmuck? You know? Is that absolutely true in all elements? Is that really true? What am I believing and is that true? And then what is it like to live with this belief? Ugh, some of the beliefs we have. It's like dragging anchors around, you know? And then a little reflection on what would it be like to not have this belief? How cool would that be? You know? When, when, when I move through the, that trajectory that some of my, you know, it's like on that one, oh gosh, there's an uplifting quality. Yeah, I don't have to live with this belief. You know? So Vitaka Vichara, often called the kind of engines of the practice, connecting, sustaining that connection. And the third element of samadhi of a collected, unified mind, is piti, translated as rapture and joy. When your mind gets concentrated for a while, and it doesn't have to be a long while, and it doesn't have to be so, you know, so deep, that there are pleasant sensations that start to arise naturally. That's just the way it rolls. <clears throat> and the continuum of pleasantness with piti can be anything from a just a kind of quiet, internal, Buddha-like smile <clears throat> to something beyond orgiastic pleasure. So, and when those energies, when there's a little piti present, there's temporarily no room for anger, no hate, no rage, no guilt, shame, fear, there's no room in the mind for that. So aversion is relaxed when there's PT. And I dare say, all of you have been on other retreats. You wouldn't be back here for a second time if you didn't have some, some experience of the pleasantness that's available here. You know? The fourth element of samadhi, which comes on, uh, on the heels, or some would say comes almost simultaneously with PT is sukha, a contented sweetness. 
My dog's name is Suka. I've had her for 16 years. Perfect name for that dog. She's just contented. She's not all frantic. Very sweet to everybody and everything. So when Sukha has arisen in you, the mind starts to settle a little more deeply. Your thinking settles down. You'll notice that at that point, there's no obsession with planning. There's no restlessness or worry. That kind of drops away. There's this feeling of generalized okayness, contentment. You know, you're getting, you're settling more and more, more deeply. And just the present experience is good enough. The bell rings, you don't want to get up. What could be better than just hanging out here with this present experience? And as the heart-mind becomes even more settled, more peaceful, you experience the flowering of the fifth element of samadhi, and that's ikagata, the unification of the mind. And that has the, the, the capacity to transform the energy of desire. When the focused intensity of your heart-mind is, is on that object, connected with that object, You don't experience a need or a want for anything. Nothing is lacking. You're not feeling deficient in any way. Desire is absent, kaput. Ekagata is synonymous with equanimity. Some people will say, well, isn't that the same as vitaka, that kind of sustaining of the connection? No, this is a different thing. In vitaka... We're sustaining in the, in the, um, with the object. Like if we're listening to the, or if we're paying attention to the breath, we're maybe discovering all kinds of things where the, the attention is around in the breath. It's in the corral of the breath. You know, it's like, a, it's like a bee being on a flower head. It's kind of staying within the flower head, but it's moving around, getting the pollen. That's Vitaka. But Ikagata, That's more like the heart-mind is there. It's like a cement post in the ground. It's not moving. And at this point, there's just a strong unification of the mind. You're totally one with the experience. All the hindrance hindrance energies are relaxed for a time being, temporarily. Okay. So I want to, I want to go even a little deeper into what's going on uh, when you have um, generated some powerful samadhi. And Sally the other night mentioned uh, Buddha Gosa and wrote a commentary. Uh, I wrote that commentary in the 5th century, about 900 years after the Buddha lived, and it had a lot of detailed information about all these various meditations, Etc. And in there, he described what's what's entailed in a unified mind, a mind blossoming. Then, that's moving into jhana from this state of akagata. Has thirty-four wholesome mental factors. I'm not going to bore you with them all. Actually, they're not boring at all. And we just spoke about five of them. But I want you to we'll take a little take a little journey and see if you can kind of smell them out and sense them. I'll just read to you some of them. So you might just relax, go inside, find your body, and receive the sense of what these might be. And these are all part of samadhi. So a mind experience, in a mind that's experiencing jhana, there is, of course, some energy, some effort. There's the nature of endeavoring. There's a steadfastness. The Pali word is virya. And in a mind experiencing jhana, there's a wholesome desire. Chanda is the Pali word. It's, a, it's, that, it's that 
desire to bring yourself into harmony and to be in harmony with nature. We can, we can get a feel for that in play also. There's faith. There's a firm faith in the training that can be felt, a thread of that. Sada is the Pali word. And of course, there's mindfulness, sati. Kind of submerging with the object. We're not forgetting the object. We're there. We're with it. In a mind that's experiencing jhana, there's what's called conscience. Hiri is the Pali word. And that's like having conscientious scruples about conduct. There's, a, there's just that thread, that flavor in there. There's also moral shame called otapa. And it's and it's a, it's a little dread about committing any misconduct. It's a slightly different flavor than conscience. And there's non-greed, alobha. It's non-attachment in all its forms. No grasping, no pushing. Non-hatred, adosa. It's non-harshness of mind. There's a softness, a loving friendliness. That's what we're cultivating. There's equanimity. That kind of evenness. Sometimes described as the nature not to go to either extreme. There's a tranquility of mind. There's a lightness of mind, an agility. Flexibility, elasticity. In the mind of samadhi, there's adaptability or wieldiness of mind. Here's one that I like. It's called proficiency of wholesome deeds. There's actually an energy that's an inclination to charity, to share, to be generous, to not hold. Another one I like is rectitude of mind, it's called. It's a mind that cannot or will not swerve towards pretense or deceit. Okay, that's a flavor of what's going on in samadhi. I think you get the picture. It's a beautiful conglomeration of wholesomeness. It's a mosaic of wholesomeness. You know, these factors arise together at times and they're temporary and then they dissolve out one after the other. So that's a little sojourn into what's happening in a fully mature samadhi. And so your meditation practice, your basic meditation practice, and what you've been doing here today, cultivating samadhi, calms these challenging energies, these hindrances, temporarily. And because these challenging energies, they come and they go, depending on the mental factors that are awake and alive and connected in our mind, you've got some choices to make. And, And Philip was talking about that. And today, we, in some of the interviews, we talked about it. Some of the questions were like, okay, how, how, when do I, how, do I just stay on the breath all the time when we're doing this shamatha practice, this samadhi practice? And the answer is yes and no. Back to being contemplative artists. You know, you will make the decision. We don't want to repress or deny anything that's powerful and that needs our tender, loving care. But that being said, in this practice, we are agreeing to or endeavoring to kind of raise that threshold of when we'll move to another phenomena. When we're practicing our regular Vipassana practice, well, we hear a sound like there was crickets in the hall the other morning. You know, they didn't know we were meditating. They thought it was time to chant. And so they're kind of echoing back and forth. And so 
At that point, you make the decision. Do I bring my attention to the sound of the cricket? It's an artistic decision. Or do I just stay with my breath? Is that, has that not crossed the threshold where it needs my attention? The same with a body sensation or an emotion. And some of you are dealing with challenging physical sensations. And so you will be making the compassionate decision to move off the breath, to allow the breath to move to the, to the background and pay that kindly attention to that strong physical sensation. Or there may be an emotion. And at that point, we, we, we make that executive decision, so to speak, or artistic decision. Okay, this is strong enough where I'm going to leave this cultivation of samadhi for now. And I'm going to recognize what's happening, bring my full attention there. It's like the acronym RAIN that, that many of you have heard. R, we recognize. A, we allow and accept what it is. You know, We investigate it in a kindly, intimate way. The I, we're with it, we're watching it change. We're learning about impermanence. The rising of phenomena, the dissolving of phenomena. And then we land when it dissolves back out into our kind of natural perfected heart-mind. And then we're back working in our practice that we've come here to do this week. So, you make, the, you make that decision. I like the, um, one of my favorite ways of, of really perceiving Vipassana is uh, is from Shanul, the 12th century Korean Zen master. And uh, he would say, hey, just start where you are. doesn't matter whether it's lust, hatred, uh, whatever it is, allow it to be. Receive that sensation, that emotion, just as they are. Embrace them kindly. Don't interfere. Whatever you stay with, or whatever you start with and stay with for a period of time in an open, kindly way is going to change. It's going to change because that's what nature does. It may intensify for a while, but it eventually will dissolve under patient equanimity, dropping you into the next configuration, whatever that is, of heart, mind, and body, whatever arises there, whatever that may be. And you stay with that until the next phenomena arises with the same kindly patience. And we do it with the next and the next. And eventually, eventually, if that same kindly patience is applied long enough, whatever those clouds or coverings are will lift and that clear, radiant, luminous mind will be revealed again. It's always present. It's just below the turbulence. I think my hindrance du jour might be planning. Sometimes I'm planning really cool stuff and I'm excited and it's really great. And other times, if I notice that a lot of planning's going, I go inside and there's, there's a little anxiety or a lot, you know? Okay, and I can begin to feel that in the body. It's my chest, my stomach. Maybe I'm contracting a little bit in the face. And if I can bring that kindly equanimity to it, it may dissolve a little bit and reveal something else. Maybe it's more than anxiety. Maybe it's fear. So I apply that kindly acceptance again. And at times it will revere or reveal what seems like a primal, more of a primal fear, down into that survival area. It's like, if I don't get this project right or do this right, I'm getting kicked out of the tribe. And way back in the savannah in East Africa, if that was the case, we were done. Not so much the case now. But it's still in our brainstem. So that anxiety and that stress... And, but if I can stay with it, with that same kind of magnanimity, that acceptance, that kindly care, 
it will eventually dissolve out into a, into a, a beautiful kind of all-inclusive expansive radiance. And as Chanuel called it, tracing back the radiance. That was his frame for his students, tracing back the radiance. Sometimes these clouds lift quickly. And sometimes it just takes a lot of time and patience. And some days these coverings are so powerful and strong they don't lift at all. Okay, no matter. Tomorrow's another day. So I want to bring to your attention uh, another consideration. And we we beat this drum every day in here. Um, And maybe the best way to illustrate it is to uh, share uh, a story of my, uh, at a time, my concentration practice. I've really been interested in these... um, States of absorption in jhana now for probably 15 years. And I've practiced in various forms of it. And I guess it was about 10 years ago now. Oh my gosh. Um, um, yeah, I had the opportunity to practice with maybe the one, of the one of the foremost jhana teachers in the world, Pawak Sayadaw, Burmese teacher. And it was very rare for him at that time to leave uh, Burma. And he would teach the rains retreat there, which aptly named because it's the, during the rainy season. And for 2,500 years, monastics and, and dedicated lay practitioners would get together for those three months in practice. Well, he, he led a couple of very large monasteries. And during the rains retreat, there would be upwards of a thousand monks, nuns, and dedicated lay practitioners would come to learn these practices to cultivate samadhi. But as good fortune would have it, and conditions were favorable, uh, he was able to leave and come to the forest refuge, and he taught a two-month retreat one year. Two years later, he came back for a four-month retreat, and I, I was able to attend those. And um, he wanted to see if the Westerners could learn his model. He was very curious. Can these kind of crazy people over here, can they, can they learn this to, to this step? I learned a, a whole lot in, the, in those retreats. And that first one, especially, that one really, I finally had an, a, an attitude adjustment that completely ripened for me. It was there. It wasn't like I didn't know this stuff. So I hope by sharing this with you that maybe it'll, you can avoid some of the, some of the problems. So Pollock, he asks a lot of his students. He's very demanding. All the sits are an hour and a half, and I could go on and on. And his English is not great. Um, so it's easy for students to somehow misinterpret what he's asking out of them. And sometimes it gets misinterpreted as, more striving, more effort, you know? you know? And that's not what he really meant. And I learned that after a lot of interaction with him. But as I took this training on the first time, just meeting him, that misinterpretation was kind of, that nuance in the instruction was kind of creeping into me. And it was unbeknownst to me that day after day, I was like striving a little more in an unhealthy way. I was leaning towards these states. I'd read about them. I knew what they were. I'd had some tastes before. I felt I had an inclination for it. So I was, I was kind of going for it, you know, and it was two months. And so I was sleeping less and less. I kept increasing the amount of my sitting time, 10 hours, 12 hours a day. I was shrinking the amount of walking time, that kind of balancing energetic that's needed in practice. And so I'm sitting one night in my room and I'm practicing and all of a sudden it's getting, 
is getting very unfocused and kind of uh, dizzy. And I'm, I realize that I'm unable to like put one thought after another. It's like I'm losing the capacity. So I just, I crawled into bed and I was a little afraid. Is this permanent? It was like, I felt like my mind broke. No other description. It just broke like a country song. My mind done broke. <laughs> she broke my heart and I broke my mind. So, um, and I usually, I always set my alarm when I'm on retreat, so I'm kind of maximizing the experience, very precious time. I didn't set the alarm. I must have slept for over 12 hours. And when I woke up, I was really thankful. Okay, here I am. I'm back. I can actually think. I'm not in a mental hospital with someone feeding me gruel from a spoon. I'm okay. Now, let's just reflect on, on what I was doing. How did this happen? You know? So, I had forgotten some of the most important aspects of practice. You know, I, I just getting a little skewed, a little off track. I lost sight of the immutable fact that everything in this practice is supported by tranquility and relaxation. Everything. Certainly not supported by striving and pushing. Now what that meant on the ground floor and what I had forgotten, and I was a teacher at the time too, you know, is that when I could detect a little striving or a little moving in. It's time for like a time out. And even now, when I find myself leaning into a, towards a phenomena, I'll just bring myself back even physically, just a few centimeters, and it kind of opens again. And to take that time to re-embody, re-relax, soften in the face, Allow the shoulders to softly unfold. Take some self-care time and reestablish the relaxation. It's key. And there was a second adjustment that I, that I keyed on that morning of kind of reflection. It's related to the first, but it has its own special characteristics. And really what had happened during that kind of striving creep was that I lost the sensibility of self-compassion. You know, the, it drifted slightly off and then more off from that kindly acceptance of the way things are. Come see, come saw. Oh, this is what's here now. That's, you know, that kind of attitude to pushing and efforting. And what? And I was committing a kind of violence to myself, really. Tightening, you know. And even though that I knew the compassionate acceptance and self-care is essential in practice, I just was becoming fixed on getting these absorption states. I was hurting myself. And maybe the last thing on that morning of... Uh, of uh, revival, I guess, was that I realized that my sense of humor and my awe for the mystery of all this was mostly missing. My sensibilities were getting heavier, not lighter. You know? I was kind of caving in on myself. My playful curiosity, which usually I have in great abundance, was lacking, was dimmed out. So that's just another drumbeat for watching that striving. If you notice it's happening, take some time for self-care, self-relaxation. Settle back, re-relax, recalibrate. Well, to finish up my my time with, 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 with Pawak, just to bring that to a close. It truly was unforgettable. 
uh, I learned an awful lot in that two-month retreat, and it kind of prepared me for the four-month retreat. And I knew how challenging it would be, so I went a month early to warm up for a month <laughs> so that I'd be ready for the four months. And during that month, I was kind of making sure that I had online, you know, that, that kind of kindly, compassionate, hum- curious, humorous attitude was in full force, front and center, for when I would start receiving his instructions. Very transformational. I could talk about it all night. But I also noticed, and sadly around me, and the Forest Refuge only holds 30 people. There are a lot of other teachers and longtime practitioners and friends. And, and I watched some of my dear friends and comrades in teaching just kind of tighten and burn and have to leave early. You know? So even mature meditators, this is so, these states can be so seductive. But because you're mature meditators, you can recognize. Your mindfulness will tell you, ah, this is striving. And then you recalibrate. So, this evening I offered a few perspectives for you to consider. That these challenging energies are part of life. And in a way, they're gifts from your ancestors. And encountering them, creating a relationship with them that has a soft understanding and appreciation is a kinder way to treat yourself. They're not the enemy. You're not at war with these energies. And the other perspective was the artistic choice that you have, you know, that to be, be awake to that threshold of these sensations, these emotions, these sounds, okay, I'm going to let them be. It's a little higher threshold than our usual vipassana. But we don't want to repress anything that needs our attention. It's a big emotion, big pain. We want to, we want to bring our kind of accepting, kindly, interested, intimate countenance to that and go through our Vipassana practice. And then when it resettles down, we start again with our shamatha practice. So there's room in this practice for tracing back the radiance. And we need to at times. The phenomena become powerful enough where we need to let the breath move to the background for a little while. And finally, you know, all of these wholesome efforts, the cultivation of samadhi and, and service, it's just a tool we're developing. It's not the end-all, be-all. It's just a tool. And service of our exploration of what's true and seeing clearly and understanding the very nature of nature. That's what we're doing. We're, we're cultivating that tool, sharpening it in a way. But that exploration in the end of nature and ourselves is really a navigation back to who we are, that natural perfected heart-mind. It's there all the time, often covered by these turbulent energies that we find ways to come into relationship with. But that oceanic, expansive, ceaselessly responsive heart is there. We don't have to create it. We can just relax into it and touch into it. So a very brief piece from Ryokan, the wandering monk, kind of exemplifies what we're doing here this week. 
like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I too quietly turn clear and transparent. I too quietly turn clear and transparent. Thank you for your attention. And we have about a half hour for walking. So relocate your body, your breath, get some air, and then we'll return again for a little chanting.